Welcome to the EuroCleo podcast, Pastimes, Talking and Teaching History. My name is Andreas Holprega and I'll be your host for this episode, where we will talk about the concept of place-based learning. I have invited two guests, Barry van Drill and Juraj Varga, who are both involved in EuroCleo projects, aiming to bring history outside of the classroom. History outside of the classroom was also the topic of our recent webinar series here at EuroCleo, and I invite you to follow us on social media to stay up to date on such events. You'll also be able to find some recorded sessions from this webinar series on our YouTube channel. All right, so I'm joined here today um, by two, two excellent guests, Barry van Drill and Juraj Varga. Barry van Drill, you are Secretary General of the International Association for Intercultural Education. You're also editor-in-chief of the academic journal Intercultural Education. Uh, you've also been employed as a curriculum uh, developer and teacher trainer at the Anne Frank House uh, in Amsterdam here in the Netherlands. And uh, right now you are also leading the Seeking Justice initiative with, together with us here at uh, EuroCleo. Welcome. Thank you. Juraj, you uh, are an educator working with teachers and trainees in Czechia and Slovakia but also around Europe, focusing on development of teaching materials and teacher training courses and programs. You've also led the development and piloting of teaching materials for the Slovak part of the project, The Experience of State Socialism Reimagined, uh, which was coordinated by the Institute for the Study of Totalitarian Regimes. You've uh, also uh, worked as a content developer for our EuroCleo project, Learning to Disagree, and you're currently a board member here at EuroCleo. So welcome home, I should say. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. So we'll go straight into a few questions for you. Um, this one, yeah, it really goes to both of you. Um, I want to ask you, what do we mean with place-based learning? Um, how does it differ from more traditional approaches um, to learning history specifically? I'll, I'll direct it to, to Barry first. Well, I use different uh, terms for this. Uh, place-based learning is one in-situ learning experiential learning, uh, there are different ways of, of referring to that. I think uh, if you look at the way traditional education takes place, and unfortunately you're seeing that still across schools in Europe, uh, there's a lot of lecture-based education, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of teacher-to-student education, watching some videos. It tends to be very passive on the part of students, so I think it's very important uh, in education, if we really want to have an impact on student learning, then I think it's important that they're actively processing information and actively processing the kind of learning material that's being given to them. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's, it's quite abstract and it's not all that engaging. So I think what you're seeing uh, is a transition to a certain extent in schools uh, to place-based learning is one example of that. And it makes things much more real for students. First of all, getting them out of the classroom is already quite an accomplishment. You know, the, the traditional approach to education is ed learning takes place in the classroom right. between yeah. these four walls and there's a ceiling above your head as well, right? There's, uh, there's not much else. And this is what's expected uh, to a certain extent when a student walks into a school, it's expected of the school, the teachers, the parents, the students themselves. However, I think it's quite clear that for many students, this is not the most exciting way of learning about any kind of topic. So the minutes you take them out of the classroom, number one, the first thing that happens is there, there's a question mark, why? Uh -huh. So they, it also needs to explain to them, why are we leaving the classroom? 
but also an awareness on the part of teachers in the school and the parents is also important that not all learning takes place in the classroom. A lot of learning takes place outside because what it also does is the minute you leave a classroom, you're connecting the students to something broader, to something more intense for them than just what's happening in the classroom. You're connecting them to the community. And I think that's an important aspect of, of education is this connection between school and community. And it really uh, does make things much more real to them when they go to, whether it's a museum, when they go to a monument, when they go to, to anything that's outside the classroom. Uh, Uri, you've also got a lot of experience with, with um, doing education outside of the classroom. Like, how, do you, how do you see this? Like, what, what, what do you see as the, as the main sort of benefit or, it, or how does it differ from, from traditional teaching? Uh, yeah, to add something on top of what uh, Barry said, uh, why, I need to also explain why we started to do it, because we don't use the term or the concept place-based learning, mm -hmm. but it's quite similar overlaps in many ways. It's uh, started while researching memory studies or being inspired by memory studies, but it's basically looking at public spaces. Usually we call it didactizing public spaces, how to look at them, how to read them, and how to use them for not just classroom practice, but for teaching. And uh, I think the, the major benefit is that we get them out, we get them more active, and uh, it's not about this transmissive approach that's more traditional, but we get them engaged and encourage them to work with what they see. Because based on the, the practice we have, we found out that in many local contexts, students and young people in, in the local context like don't really observe or don't interact with the public spaces they pass, they go through every day. And this is one of the things I think that's most beneficial from this approach, because after a workshop or a class, they start to look things or see things differently. They start to look and read things, public spaces that are around them. And can you, can you tell us a bit more concretely about some of the projects and initiatives that you have been running in Czechia and Slovakia or elsewhere actually? What, 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 what kind of on-site or like yeah, public, um, in public space learning do you do? I can, I can do a, a like very brief or, or concise excursion into what we did from 2014 because we did workshops in many towns and cities around Czechia and Slovakia, but they had a similar format. We took teachers out, not the students, sometimes students, but we work uh, mostly with teachers. So we want them to try it, to grasp the, the approach, and then also to do what we call didactical analysis with them, so they understand the meta level of it and can transfer it into their own teaching. So we take them out and, for example, at several places, we just focused on squares. So we did just one half day workshop, like how we can work with squares in three different ways. Like city squares. City squares. Right, yeah. Then how we can work with different monuments, like mm -hmm. how we can use like three, four different approaches with the same type or category of monuments or street names. Because there are many things you can open up in public spaces like majority of them are connected with like memory layers that you can, if you have the resources, you can open them up. And that's one of the things that, uh, that still needs or teachers are lacking, like good source collections, good resources that they can work with. Like the approach is fine. I guess it's already out there. It's not like that widely used, 
but uh, one of the most things are are sources that are needed for them for their teaching. Let me just emphasize what uh, what you're saying here is that, uh, uh, and a lot of my work has also been focused on uh, monuments, memorials. Uh, mm -hmm in public spaces. And I think there, there are different ways of, of working with that. I know that in terms of um, history education, memorialization, a lot of the initiatives are around, let's say, a certain monument to victims. And uh, a lot of these initiatives also cleaning the monument, taking care of the monument. A lot of the work that, uh, that I've done takes a slightly different approach to that is really focused on critical thinking and multi-perspectivity. And I think when we're talking about history education, I, I think it's critical that, uh, that all education should try to develop the critical thinking skills and the competences of young people and also allow them to see that there's multi-perspectivity. So in, in some of the projects I've worked on, and Yuri's also worked on some of those, I think, um, it's trying to also interview people in the street about these different kinds of monuments that are there that they walk by every day. We all do, yeah, right? Yeah. We walk by these monuments. We don't really think, we don't about think what they're yeah. about. Yeah. So it's pausing thinking. There's a history behind each one of these monuments. Uh, there's a history of why it was put there. Uh, there are certain events that take place sometimes at these monuments. And therefore, it's, it's critical for any community to become aware, especially young people, and by the way, young people then communicate with their parents what they've done, hopefully. Um, what these monuments, why they're there and how they came into being and getting these different perspectives because if you ask five people about a particular monument, whether it's appropriate, whether they know what it's about, if they could have been done differently, you'll get five different answers. There's not a true or false response there, right? There are different perspectives on what that monument means to the community and it's that meaning that's important. And it means different things to different people. So that's that aspect. You are asking about uh, other projects. Um, you already mentioned in the introduction, seeking justice. Yeah. And I think this, let me use a metaphor here for a second. You can uh, try to understand the ocean by reading about the ocean in a book, mm. right? You can also understand the ocean by getting in a boat. I was thinking about this this afternoon when I cycled here, I'm in Holland, so we cycle. And this is the metaphor that popped in my mind. You can get into a boat and go out into the ocean. You're looking around and see the ocean. You can also jump into the ocean. You can put on diving gear and go into the ocean. You can go really in-depth and you have a much better understanding of this. So I think it's really critical in the kind of educational work that I do that this deeper understanding takes place. And it's not reading. It's not watching a video. I mean, that's also important. Reading and watching a video is also important. Mm. But that complements the kind of experiential and the kind of experiences that young people have. So in this particular project you were referring to, Seeking Justice, it's first reflection about what is justice and what is injustice. Almost every young person, talking teenagers, has a vague sense of what justice and injustice is. But then when you ask them what is injustice, examples of injustice, uh, yeah, they can come up with something, but give examples of what justice is. And this is where you get the critical thinking, and this is where you get the discussion and debate, and people might differ in their opinions. So we start with that, mm -hmm. having young people reflect on their own definitions, first as individuals, then in a group, on what are these concepts, and can they think of examples. We get them discussing this. Then we look at the historical aspect of that. Because most people, when they think of justice and injustice, think of today, what's happening in today's world. And that's also important. And when we're doing this kind of place-based learning, by the way, because when, they, when young people go to a certain place, public space, that's now. 
So that's important for a citizenship or civics education teacher. But when you go to a certain place, it has a history. Mm. That's where the history teacher comes in. So it allows collaboration between the two. Seeking justice, we look at the Nuremberg trials. What happened at Nuremberg? Because these are, this was a unique history and it is the basis for all international law that came after it. So they learn about Nuremberg, they learn about what happened in Nuremberg, they discuss that, different opinions, was this, was this really justice or not? Or was this something different, right? And the opinions differ about that. Was this victor's justice or not? But the key to all this is after they've been then prepared by learning about Nuremberg and learning about conflicts today, we actually go to the International Criminal Court. So if you're 16 or older, you can go to the International Criminal Court, you can watch a trial. Mm -hmm. So these young people go in at 16, 17 with a very vague concept of what justice and injustice is, and especially international justice, but they go and they watch a trial. And this is life transformative for some of them, not all, but for some of them it's life transformative. Because what they see when they go is, this is history in the making at this very moment. So whenever we do the evaluation, you know, I try to be as charismatic as I can be. And there's another trainer who tries to be as charismatic as she can be. And then when we do the evaluation, it's like, no matter how charismatic we are, it's the visit to the trial. Mm -hmm. It's watching this take place and watching history in motion, history in the making that really has the impact on them. And afterwards, not that that's our intention at all. Our intention is for them to basically learn more about international justice, think critically about it and form their own opinions and, and, and realize that there are multi, multiple perspectives, as I mentioned before, but many of them do choose to study some kind of law or some kind of uh, social sciences. So that's what we're doubting. So it really has quite the impact on them. And so these, these kids that join this, this program, the youth, um, they, 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 they actually come here to The Hague then to, to be able to, to visit the court. And I, it's necessary for the, uh, for the students to come to The Hague. Yeah. We also talk as much as possible with the teachers because I think what we also realize is that any kind of place-based learning and also with this particular program that actually going to a trial, visiting a museum, is a visit of an hour or two hours and you know young people today get bored fairly quickly so it's important that that kind of experience is embedded uh -huh. uh, and so they need to be prepared and that's we do that uh, over two days it takes two days for that preparation right. we kind of replace the teacher teachers can also do that but we also try to talk to the teachers about what do you do after this you don't want them to leave this experience behind them and then there's nothing avoid they're very energized they're very motivated to learn more so it's important to follow up in some way. Uh, you're right, question directly for you here. How, how do these projects that you're learning, how have they impacted on your students? Uh, yeah, on the students and young people we worked with, uh, I want to come back to what uh, Barry mentioned several times, it's the community, and to me it still leads me to thinking about the sense of belonging. Because every time we open the public space to them, they start to be more observant, start to more engage with the space and start to ask more questions or be more curious. And also this is one of the more ultimate goal, one of the ultimate goals we have doing these workshops, projects and programs, like to really get them curious about what they pass every day, what they go through every day, meaning the public space. And to this comes also one other thing that really like adds on top of that, it's the, the community. Mm -hmm. Because it also helps them 
to be more prouder or be more like uh, involved in the community in the local context because many times history is too detached for them too yeah. distant and this way we bring it more closer also Barry mentioned it that like happens in the present so it it connects the the past with the present but interacting with the your surroundings it really like strengthens also the sense of community sense of belonging and i believe also gives them better insight and deeper understanding of their identity mm-hmm. who they are what are they doing uh, and where do they come from i want to emphasize one aspect uh, to uh, to add to that that the sense of belonging also applies to that diversity that you would find with any school or classroom these days that when you're looking at these public spaces, when you're looking at monuments, there are monuments are there for a reason. I mean, there's a, uh, also has to do with power dynamics, as who who decides which monument gets put there. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, the voices that are not heard, and I think it's important to when you're looking at these kinds of public spaces to have a discussion with young people as to which voices are not represented here. Mm-hmm. What kind of monuments might need to be created in our community based on its history that are not here today? Uh, if you look at the past, that's oftentimes women. Mm. There are very few monuments of women. That's changing, thank goodness. But what other voices are not there? So that kind of discussion in and of itself can also help create a sense of belonging of those young people that belong to different communities, and you have that across Europe and across mm. the globe, that are not re- represented in these public spaces, that are not represented in these monuments. And as a teacher, it's important to know how can I build on those kinds of concerns, those kinds of insights as well. And I can imagine it's also uh, um, using public spaces can also be a very nice uh, way of showing to students sort of the, the interconnectedness between a very local environment and global history, national history. It, it can all come together in a sense in, in the public space as well or in a monument and depending on what, what, what the monument is commemorating of course but do you have, do you have any yes the, there are several examples that I can use from the projects we did uh, for example my hometown I like to use my hometown because we did it in many other places but right now I'm focusing on it and researching and doing uh, materials for my hometown uh, you can like track or explain even national narratives through local context which is also interesting for for my hometown like why some things like for example the revolution in 89 happened as i said very distantly in prague when they are being taught about it but when they bring also the local sources uh, local context what happened in the hometown and why why it was affected by the like czechoslovak national uh, context and how it happened in in the hometown, it also opens up more the topic to them. Mm-hmm. And this way we can also go into global developments. For example, there is one thing right now I'm working on, it's about beetroots. The uh, the whole region around my hometown... The vegetable. Yeah, the yeah. vegetable. Oh, I thought like, hey, Ashbury. <laughs> <laughs> the, the beetroot basically, or the need for beetroot and sugar, transformed the whole region because the strongest aristocratic family was Andrasis, like one of the top political families in uh, Austria-Hungary. And they really transformed because of beetroot and its production, the whole region. But it's never been looked at it at the, this past 
or at this global development in my home and local context this way. So yeah, there are there are many things that we can like flip around, go from like the big history to the history of everyday life to global developments to look at the national or bigger narratives or master narratives from the local contexts. It gives you many options and opportunities. I think one thing to add to that is that if you have uh, some place-based learning, that it's also important to realize that this this will motivate people, doing young people especially, if they do this kind of work, uh, to know more. They want to know more. So they're going to be more motivated at the, than at the beginning if they've done this first. This allows, of course, in today's world with the di- entire digital environment at their, at their fingertips to research more about what they've seen and to also, for instance, if we're talking about monuments or public spaces, to, to research online, have other communities done this differently, whether that's in one's particular country or another country. And just getting an understanding, again, this is the multi-perspectivity and how uh, reality can be interpreted in different ways, how this, this kind of commemoration and these kinds of public spaces can also be created in different ways and trying to maybe even understand why that took place. That's more difficult, of course. But uh, I think that's also quite critical. Great. Um, I, I wanted to pick up on something that sort of both of you have mentioned a little bit. Like, Yura, you were talking about going to, to squares, to memorial sites, essentially. Uh, you also mentioned it, um, Barry, and you also obviously mentioned the court. And I want to ask, how do you, both of you, but I'll, I'll direct it first to Yura, how do you see the current sort of state of cooperation, engagement between educators, teachers, schools, and what we can term sort of producers of history. You mentioned you, they, they are really watching history and being made when they're at the court. But how, 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 how's your experience been um, working with all these kinds of producers of history, have museums, archives, uh, memorial sites, etc.? I see. Uh, well, we started doing these things in 2014 with my colleagues. And after eight years, I can say that, for example, in local context, in my hometown, which is southeastern Slovakia, Trebišov, there the, the cooperation is still not going on. Like there is interest from archives, from libraries, from museums to work together, but it's still not like coherent, regular cooperation. Only from time to time, when when we come to the hometown with my colleagues and do something. And then I also can point to an experience that's going on on a like Slovak-wide level. Mm-hmm. Like many of these history producers, as you label them, are interested in these uh, cooperations. They see strong potential in using public spaces or place-based learning, but it's it's still I guess in, at, at the beginning. And then when I look at the project that we do with Euroclear, which is called "Who Are the Victims of National Socialist." where the key or the, the central point is place-based learning. Then we, we see that also around Europe, like there are many initiatives going on because there are many interesting people involved in it. And one of the outputs will be a tutorial or series of tutorials done by the students for students how to engage with public spaces and with places around them. Plus, there will be outputs uh, from experts about project-based learning. So I, I see or I sense the, the trend there mm-hmm. that things are rising up, but it's still not going on. It's still not regular. And I have also one other experience. A few weeks ago, I was in India uh, interacting for the first time with Indian teachers. Didn't know what to expect yeah. because it was my like, first two workshops in, in those environments at the teachers' conference and found out that 
basically they have the, the same needs, the same problems and obstacles on many levels in many fields. But if it comes to project-based learning, they are highly interested in that, would love to do it. But again, I come to the point where the, where the sources are missing and they don't have time to, to research about them. They, they want to do it because I did, for example, one workshop about my hometown. And I wanted just to show them the, the methodology, like how do we do it, how do we open it up, uh, just on the memory levels. But it is because I researched about my hometown and I created collection about it. But there's nothing done by, even by historians yet. So this is the thing with, for example, in my hometown, in my local context, things need to grow up. And for India, it, it sounds like they're also interested in these, these approaches, but they're, again, lacking these connections and like fruitful cooperations with history producers. Mm. I think there's definitely, uh, just to um, add to that, that there's definitely interest in, in many countries. I've been to maybe 25, 30 different countries. Oftentimes there's an interest, there's a lack of the knowledge how to do this. There's a lack of the knowledge how to fit it into already very overburdened schedule and that varies. So it's trying to find the space to do this kind of work as well and how does it fit into the national curriculum and how do you convince the head of the school that this is something you want to do, right? And getting all the permission slips from the parents to get the kids out of the school, that's a real challenge and it means that uh, teachers have to find a way uh, to, to get the permission slips that they need to get these kids out of the class, out of the class, out of the school. And there's certain dangers as well in leaving the classroom as well. You need to go in traffic, uh, especially if you don't want one child going and doing interviews somewhere in the street. You need to do that in a group as well. That needs to be coordinated. So it's a little bit more challenging than it would be otherwise. I, th I think with uh, because you're doing work on, on national socialism, I just want to mention that there's also some threats there as well that I've noticed, you know, having worked for the Anne Frank House for 20-some years, that also you can have a, a, what I call a false sense of understanding. Mm -hmm. If you would go to Auschwitz today and, and take a trip to Auschwitz, which I recommend everybody to do, uh, I think many young people don't really truly know how to contextualize what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. They need to realize that what they're seeing now is not what the situation was if we're looking 60 years ago. Right. So this false sense of understanding needs to be addressed by teachers in the classroom as well to give a much better impression that just because you saw what it looks like today doesn't mean you have an understanding of how people experienced it at the time. Getting to this relationship between teachers and, and, and museums, for instance, and memorial sites, one of the things that uh, one needs to realize is that memorial sites, it's not their main priority oftentimes, especially if you're dealing with national socialism. The main priority for them, with the limited budgets that they have, is commemoration, is trying to pass on the story of those that perished. Education is there, but it's not the main priority oftentimes. And sometimes there's even a conflict between commemoration and education. Most of the people that are working in these museums are not necessarily educators as such. Mm -hmm. So I think there's also a role for teachers to reach out to these kinds of institutions and offer their support as well and work with these institutions and I'm hoping that institutions become more open to that work with these institutions to develop collaborative projects with these institutions whether that's writing a grant together uh, and, and working on some kind of project together or whether that just means more discussion um, more, more talk with the institutions as to how they might be able to change a little bit of their programming and making that the programming that they do and also the, the exhibitions that they have 
a little bit more relevant to young people today. Mm -hmm. So for instance, uh, if you go to the country of Colombia, which has a recent conflict, um, if you go into various memorial sites there, they have a lot of interactive stuff. Because let's face it, now I wish it wasn't the case. I wish the kids still really enjoyed traditional learning more than they do. But you know, they're all very focused on digital learning. They're focused on touch screens. And this is what gets them engaged today. So memorial sites, museums need more of that if they really want to engage young people. Maybe a, a follow-up question to that is how, in the context of, of yeah, learning on site, place-based learning, how easy is it to give more agency to the students themselves or to the youth themselves in setting this up in a sense? Do you have any experience with that? I think, I think students need guidance uh, and, and it has to be clear what, number one, what's expected of them. Mm. It has to be clear oftentimes that it's serious, that they're, this is not just going to be some kind of fun outing, right. yeah. that they're really there to learn something. So there has to be some component as well as to once you've been there and hopefully you've learned something, that has to be brought back into the classroom and discussion has to take place. Uh, around the kinds of things that they saw. So that from the very beginning, they need to realize that this is something that's quite serious. Uh, too often, uh, what I've seen is educators in general think, okay, now, there's, now uh, it's a break, I can go have a cup of coffee. I don't need to uh, engage them anymore because we have this guide who's taking them through the museum or something. But I think it just has to be discussed in advance with the students what the expectations are. That has to be clear for them. Um, and also what's going to be done with that afterwards. Mm -hmm. If that can be done properly, they tend to be very excited. But I think also it's important uh, as any educator, anybody who's working with young people, especially if it's a controversial issue in any way, or it's a history that might be controversial or might be emotional, for teachers also to observe. Observe those that are being excluded for whatever reason, right? It could yeah. be that part of this history, especially in contested societies, rubs the students the wrong way, so to speak, uh, that they disengage, uh, that they feel upset, that they get emotional. Um, that needs to be watched very carefully sometimes. Yeah, if, if I also may add on top of that, because uh, many ideas came up in my mind, uh, there's like, sounds to me like uh, when we're thinking about the students and also teachers doing this, it's like scaffolding out there in the open. Right. So. Yeah, Barry told us about the students and their agency or their active participation, their learning, their building up. But we also need to think about the teachers. That uh, Your questions point to the thing that it's every time very traditional, this uh, using of public spaces or place-based learning. So that's why we also need for teachers support, like train them how to do it or provide them with materials how to do it. The scaffolding that you mentioned, I think, is, is really critical that uh, when the students leave the classroom, there has to be scaffolding for them as mm -hmm. to what they're going to learn. Mm -hmm. And um, there have to be reflective moments. You know, it's often said there's no education without reflection. So that kind of space also has to be created for them. And one thing I didn't mention is I think many students also will feel once they leave the classroom and there's some guide present who's taking them through a museum or taking them to some monument, that they can just sit back and do nothing. So I think it's, that's not what the intention is, right? The yeah. intention is that they actively engage when they're there. So this is, takes a little bit of uh, effort on the part of teachers or any kind of institution that, uh, that the students will visit, any kind of public space that the students will visit, that there, there has to be something in place 
that will get them to actively engage with that kind of environment. And this is why uh, oftentimes with the kind of work that we have done in the past with, with these monuments, they all have a role, they all have a task when they go there. And they're expected to interview locals when they go there as well. Mm -hmm. So they'll do this in small teams and that means training them how to do a proper interview. Because interviewing is not something that you just automatically know how to do. You need a little bit of training to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's training that takes place partly in the classroom and they get the experience in uh, when they go to a public space and when they come back from a public space, that's part of the question that gets asked of the students. Not only what did you learn at this public space and uh, did you hear different opinions when you interviewed people, but what was it like doing the interviews? Did you learn something about interviewing and how did that go and how did you engage with these people? Those are skills that are lifelong skills. I'm thinking your podcast host should probably come and attend next time as well. <laughs> so thank you very much for, for this. I, I think we will we'll try to round up a bit. I, I have one last question for you guys both, um, because it's, it's something that obviously all teachers will have to think about in this, in this regard, but also you guys who are, who are developing these kind of programs. What about assessment? How do you how do you do that with a with place based methodology in particular? Is there anything different that we need to think about when we're? How have you done it? How do you do it? Yeah, I'm thinking about what Barry mentioned several times. It's reflection, because without reflection, without proper reflection, there is like no education. That was the point. Yeah. yeah. So so I think that uh, it's not just about the training, about the preparations, about doing dividing the roles, doing the tasks, but the last part, this assessment, mm -hmm. it, it can come in different various forms. We have many techniques, very different strategies, but it has to be done in, uh, it can be done outside. Like this is uh, like the most interesting thing. Do it, you can do it in the classroom afterwards. But uh, for example, for assessment, even that you can prepare or just leave it to somehow structure discussion. Mm -hmm. I'd say that yeah, also with assessment, I mean, uh, traditionally in education, of course, you test people. That's what tends to happen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, visiting a particular place is part of an educational process. It's not the only thing you're testing. So I think uh, it has to be taken into consideration that, that the entire experience and the entire learning process has to be assessed. I personally try to steer as much away in, uh, from testing uh, in my past uh, as possible because I don't think it gives a true view of what students have learned. Uh, however, it is one way of assessing them and it's the easiest way of assessing and it allows comparisons between the students, right? But I think uh, it's like with uh, cooperative learning methodologies and group learning, a lot of the assessment is to what extent have you contributed to the process to what extent have you taken perhaps a leadership role? Have you, if there are different roles that students have, to what extent did you fulfill that role? There can also be self-assessment, which I think is important. Having the students assess, what have I learned? What do I still need to learn, right? And everybody still needs to learn something. So uh, that self-assessment I think is also important. And also students assessing each other carefully and safely, that can also be part of this as well. So it's also looking at, it's not only assessing the what they've learned, but the process and their contribution to that process. Wonderful. Thank you both uh, very much, uh, Barry and Juraj, for sharing your experiences in the projects you've been working on. A couple of EuroCleo projects were mentioned, so I'll also take the chance to, right. to encourage uh, our listeners to, to perhaps uh, send, uh, send the, the, the kids to Seeking Justice here in The Hague. That's right. 
uh, or indeed to keep an eye out on, on our project uh, with the German foundation EVZ on who were the victims of, of national socialism. Uh, this whole conversation is also in a sense part of a larger thematic focus we've had at Euroclio uh, for the last month on history outside of the classroom. So there are plenty of more things to discover online on uh, our YouTube channel where uh, you can learn more about all these uh, methodologies that we can use with students. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.